Welcome, friends, to Moment with Miranda, and welcome into the house of the delighted Father. He is so very pleased today to give us access into his presence and to teach us the truth about who he is. Each week, you and I get to come together to take time to gaze into the mirror of the Word of God and to see Jesus. We don't just want to know about him, but we want to know him. We want to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings. We want to be made conformable to his death so that we might be made conformable and live in the power of his life. We know that as we behold him through his word, that we are being empowered to walk in the liberty of the sons and the daughters of God, and we're being transformed into the glorious image of Jesus Christ. And what an awesome reality and an awesome privilege that is for you and I. So today's moment I'm calling Spam Risk. And if that piques your curiosity, then I want you to stay with me today as we dig together into the Word of God. A few days ago, my mom and I were on a job together, just chatting away while we were working, of course. And all of a sudden, we grew quiet as we heard one of our phones just buzzing quietly in our purses. And we each dug into the recesses of the black hole that are our handbags and my mom pulled out her phone which was just vibrating away she looked and she said out loud spam risk as she identified the caller instead of answering she just put the phone down and went back to work because she didn't want to waste time dealing with something that really didn't matter or someone that was just going to try to sell or something if you own a cell phone today which i can't imagine you don't You've probably experienced the same thing and probably on a daily basis like most of us. Your phone rings and the caller ID tells you that it's an unknown number or maybe it says spam risk or perhaps it says potential for spam. They're all a little bit different. I'm not exactly sure how they figure out that that's what it is, but it is certainly a nice heads up to know what could be coming and to help you avoid a call that just wastes your time and often frustrates the life out of you. It also gives you the choice to answer because sometimes you're curious if it is someone that you might actually know or maybe it is just someone telling you that your car warranty is up, a whole bunch of lies. Either way, you have this choice whether to answer the call or not. I personally am amazed that out of the phone calls that I receive in a month, over half of them are spam calls. They are fake news. They are time wasters. They are patience testers. They have no influence to my day except what I allow them to have, and that is my decision. You can probably see where I'm going with this. I wonder how many times in a day, in a week, In a month, my spiritual life is interrupted by a risk of spam. There's a potential distraction to veer me off course from a life of peace and assurance, from a life of hope and joy, from a life 
that has the power to overcome and to walk in the authority that God has given me. And it distracts me into this place of worry that wastes my time and fear that can frustrate and confuse me and even outright lies that knock me down and try to take me out. See, friends, we are not as vulnerable as sometimes it may seem that we are. We do not have to be so easily derailed and depressed through the spam that comes uninvited and unexpected into our everyday life. We can take a stand. We can take ownership. And we have to ask, what are we allowing to influence us? And what are we believing when it comes to our authority in our own lives? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was a caller ID that would warn me of potential spam in my life so that I could avoid it altogether? Or so that when it did come, I would have the answer that I needed to overcome it? Well, we do have that warning system and we do have that power to combat the distractions of the enemy and of our own selves. We do have the authority to live above the influences that vie for our attention and for our time. We can refuse to answer the call of self and Satan. And we can do this, friends, because we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And that spirit is making us into God's image again. And he is revealing to us the truth of God through his word. And he is enabling us to walk it out as we yield to his influence moment by moment. We were not meant to be ruled and to be schooled by life, but rather we were created to be people of authority, ones who are under authority and ones who walk in authority. The last few moments that we have shared together, I've found myself kind of running through this same vein, going back to the Garden of Eden to lay groundwork. We have looked in the past at how God is restoring us to his image and his characteristics. When we're born again by the Spirit of God, we are given back his image and we're being molded and shaped to be people that can exude his character. We have looked at how we're created to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, to reproduce that character and to reproduce his image through our actions in our daily life. And today, what I want to look at is the next task that God gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. And that task was to subdue the earth and to take dominion. So let's go to the scripture together first to get established. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 and 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. 
These two words, subdue and have dominion, are pretty strong words. To subdue in Hebrew means to tread down, and to have dominion means to rule or to subjugate. In our culture, those words more often than not have a negative connotation. No one wants to be subdued and no one wants to be dominated. And for us to say that that's what God intended for us to do seems a little countercultural. It seems harsh. It seems unfeeling. After all, after all, God is love, right? And we're called to love. So how can we tread down or walk all over something and bring it into submission in love? It doesn't seem to make sense. But friends, we get to remember that what God initiated was perfect because he is perfect. In the garden, everything started good. He gave to Adam and Eve the qualities of himself that they were to operate in. We've talked about this. His truth, his love, his goodness, his faithfulness, his authority and power. Out of the perfection of his image in them, the image of selflessness and humility, of peace and of power, they were given the ability through these things, were given the ability to subdue and to dominate the earth and what was in it. There was actually great care intended in these words. This subduing and this domination really was love. The earth was given as a gift of God's goodness and love to man. And man was in a way given back to the earth to care for it because it was all in God's interest. The earth was not greater than man. Don't get me wrong. Don't get my words twisted. But rather, man was given the authority to rule over the earth. And that authority came by the word of God that was greater than all of it, greater than man and greater than all of creation. There's something though that I noticed here that man and woman were not given authority over. One, it was God himself, but more than that, they were not given authority over each other. In God's perfection in Eden, there was no question as to who was in charge or who had the final say. There wasn't this vying back and forth for authority. God had the say, and they were responsible to keep or to have dominion over God's word for themselves, over their own lives. He had placed them in positions beside one another, and they were to exercise authority in those positions, both being able to accomplish what God gave them the ability to do. The authority that came from God was to be used to serve God and to serve one another. The influence that created them was the influence that was to guide them into love, into care, and into nurture. I think that we can pretty firmly say that the dominion and the power that God gave to us as human beings in the garden was perfect in execution and in love because it came from a perfect father and from his perfect word. But then one day, as always, we come to Eve 
she gets a call. This is how I'll say it today. If she had a cell phone, it probably would have said spam risk or unknown caller or potential for spam here because what the serpent was about to spew was lies and it was lies that would knock all of creation off course it would subvert the joy it would displace the good it would rob men and women of the perfection that they were created under she was just about to listen to the first voice that challenged the authority that she was created under and walked in already the challenge was not actually to eve herself or to adam her husband the challenge was against the character of the God whose image they were created in. The challenge was that he wasn't who he said he was and that he was withholding something good from them, that he had not been completely good because there was something of himself that he wasn't showing. So as soon as Eve eats this forbidden fruit, that stinking, stinking fruit, her influence is tainted by herself and she gives to her husband to eat. And so Adam eats and therefore all of mankind eats and is covered in sin and shame. Now, man and woman desire to dominate and to rule one another. And it's not from this selfless motive that always was, but it was for self-sustaining purposes. Now the earth fights to sustain. It fights against them. Now things become difficult. Now there are these competing influences all the time. There was no sin to have dominion over them, but now all of the sudden there would always be the awareness of choice, the awareness of good and evil, the choice to choose life or the choice to choose death. It's worth pointing out that God didn't take away man's ability to influence or his ability to rule. Just like he didn't take away their ability to be fruitful and to multiply, he also did not take away their responsibility to subdue the earth and to walk in authority. Only now they would have this choice of doing that their way or doing it the way that he said. They would have this choice to follow what he said and to follow with the right motivation of heart. And they would always be aware, there would always be this other option that would be in their head, this potential always to go a different way. And they would be challenged by that voice and by the voice of themselves. We can look right away and see this begin to play out, not just in Adam and Eve, but right in their offspring, Cain and Abel. We read about the story of their offerings to God. And th this is a story that I have wrestled with and wondered about. And I'm not saying that I have the answers about it, but I think it's interesting that many times I heard that God didn't accept Cain's offering and that's why Cain was mad. And I've also heard that God didn't accept his offering because it wasn't blood. 
doesn't actually say that God didn't accept Cain's offering. Instead, it says that he had respect to Abel's offering, but he didn't have respect to Cain's. He didn't have a pleasure in his offering. And we can wonder, what was that all about? If we look at the whole of scriptures, we get, I think, a little bit more of an understanding out of the book of Hebrews because we get to see something in that book that we don't see in Genesis. Hebrews testifies of something greater. In chapter 11, verse 4, it says that by faith, Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice to God. Perhaps it was not simply the offering, but the motivation or the influence or the heart in which the offering was given. Maybe one was freely given. Maybe one was given by duty. Maybe it was because one was a blood sacrifice and one wasn't. We don't actually get to know for certain. But either way, when confronted with his own anger and motivation, Cain was reminded now of his own authority over his choices. Because God said, isn't it true that if you do what's right, you'll be fine? But if you don't do what's right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Notice those two words, dominate and subdue. It sounds exactly like what God had told Adam and Eve that they were to do in the garden. But listen, now there was this spam risk that came from an outside source for Cain. It came not from a literal outside source, like the serpent to his mother, but it actually came from a source outside of the life of God that was within him. And that source was his own heart. That source was his own thoughts. Cain would have the choice to take dominion over his own intentions, or they would take authority and dominion over him. He could be derailed by his own desires, or he could ignore that call. He could subdue that desire to answer. His choice was to listen to the lies, though. And by listening to the lies, listening to that spam, he took Abel's life. And we see that this now becomes a pattern for mankind. And it becomes the way that our nature now lends itself to. The further that we progress from Eden's perfection and into the scriptures, the more we see man led by their own desires and by his own ways. Eventually, God's answer to this, to this depravity that begins to come about, is to send the flood. And to me, it's just sobering and almost crazy to think that out of all of mankind during that time, I don't know how many, but out of all of mankind, there was only one man that was righteous in the sight of God, and that was Noah. Can you imagine that? I mean, we think that things are bad now. Think of how they were then and how for 120 years, Noah preached truth and he built an ark to prepare for what God said was to come. 
And he did that with no converts and with no rain to indicate that what he was warning about was actually going to happen. The Bible tells us that before Christ returns now, that it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. And we see this. Every man will do what's right in their own eyes, and their ways are going to be continually evil before God. And we can really see where that seems to be fast approaching. And like Noah, we are called to be preachers of righteousness. I'm thankful that I'm not the only one, that there are other brothers and sisters around the world that call on God out of a pure heart, that desire to genuinely know him and that have been made righteous by Jesus Christ and have been given this mandate to be preachers of righteousness, to not just say it, but to also do it. We've been given this mandate to take the authority that God gives us to speak his word and to walk in his ways and to show man the truth, even if like in Noah's days, they won't listen. Again, what a sad and a sobering thought. So my friends and I, we were talking about this story of Noah. And one of them pointed out something that I had never seen before. We have Noah, this righteous man, who is allowing at this point the word of God to influence him and to have authority in his life. He is obeying the command to build what has never been built before and to prepare for what has never been experienced before. He's choosing to take dominion really over his own self, um, using the word that God has spoken very simply to build this ark. And he sees that after all of the years of building and preparing and just walking in obedience to what God said, the rain comes just like God said. And he and his family are safe within that ark as all of the rest of creation is destroyed and the earth is flooded for days and days and days. So we know that finally the ark rests and the land becomes dry and it's ready to be inhabited again. And out come these eight survivors, the sole survivors of the flood. And the scripture tells us that Noah, who had spent 120 years as a carpenter, now becomes a farmer and he plants a vineyard. And he drinks of the wine that's come from the vineyard that he's planted. And the Bible says that he gets drunk and he is naked in his tent. And consequently, his son sins. And we don't know if he just saw him naked or what exactly it was that happened. I don't understand that portion of the scripture. But what we can see is that Noah's drunkenness led to exposure. And ultimately, there was a sin that happened in one of his son's lives. And his drunkenness was really this lack of self-authority and dominion. Like Cain, just outside of the safety of the ark, that ark that had saved him and his family really for years, Outside of that ark, sin was crouching and it was ready to have an influence if given the authority to have the influence. The spam risk had potential to derail the lives of these men and women that had been saved. 
Friends, the point that I'm endeavoring to establish through these beginning stories in Genesis is the point that we are always under the influence of something or someone. It's how we live. We live under the dominion of something or someone. And this was intended to be a good thing. But like all of God's other good intentions, sin came in to influence and to dominate by distorting God's purposes and desires. Just like the spam calls come to interrupt and to disrupt our day, so does sin and its call. It could seem like we have no choice but to accept that we're just human and we're going to succumb to, again, that serpent's call. It seems like we have to accept that this is just the way it is, that boys will be boys, that this is just how I am, that all of my family was this way, that I was born in sin and therefore I am sin servants and I am just given over constantly to do the things that I don't want to do. Well, friends, we could live that way, and I would say that many of us have lived that way. We have been very much like Adam and Eve in the garden, immediately playing the blame game whenever we're confronted with ourself and denying our own need to take ownership and self-authority. We have allowed excuses to keep us from standing fast in truth. Curiously, we have answered the call of our own desires, and at times we have been sideswiped and shipwrecked. But I'm going to be bold enough to say that I don't think that we have to. If, like all of the other original mandates that were given in Eden, if dominion is restored to us as followers of Jesus, then he must have made provision for us to overcome and there therefore must be power for us to walk out that dominion so i think that we should take some time today to look and to see it stay tuned in for more moment with miranda Hey, welcome back to Moment with Miranda. Thanks for staying tuned in with me today and to today's moment that I'm calling Spam Risk. We've been looking at, again, Eden's mandate and what God has given mankind to do. And this particular portion that we're looking at is the mandate for us to subdue the earth and to take dominion. First, we saw God's desire of what dominion was and how mankind would walk it out in harmony with God's ways. However, when the call of the serpent, the spam of his hiss, if you will, was listened to, the influence of sin became man's dominant voice. Now, we would have to master sin or to be mastered by it and then try to master others. We would always be aware of our choices and our ability to be influenced. As much as this can sound maybe like a scary warning, I really hope that you don't see it that way, friends. I don't want to spend my life constantly on the lookout for sin jumping on me and eating me like a hungry lion, or I don't want to make you terrified that you're going to fail in the end and be eternally separated from God. What kind of good news and life of assurance and peace is that? 
It's not one at all. That's a life that puts all of the responsibility on me. The responsibility to be right, to do right, to look right, to act right, to think right, to hope right. And that is totally exhausting. And we can try to do that and we can succeed in some places for a time. But there's always going to be a lack. There's always going to be this awareness that we will miss the mark if we try to do it ourselves. And this is a life that constantly keeps us towing a line or dropping the line. And this is not the life of the believer and the one who has authority. And this is not the life that God has chosen for us. As always, in these moments, I like to bring them to a place of practical application for you and for me. I don't want to just read these stories out of the Bible and leave us wondering, but rather I want to ask myself questions and see how this applies. What does the life of a believer, of one that has been restored to dominion God's way, look like? And how do I avoid falling into the trap of answering the spam calls that divert my faith and steal my joy and rob me of the abundant life that Christ died to give me? In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, the Apostle Paul tells us the kind of life that I think that we're called to. He says that God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth to which you are called by the gospel to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brothers, stand fast and hold the traditions that you've been taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. I want to bring our attention right away to this passage and to what Paul says to start. He says, God, who from the beginning has chosen you to salvation through sanctification and belief of the truth. So in the garden, man's sin did not catch God off guard. In fact, God already had a plan in motion. We talk about this all the time. We read in the scriptures where it says that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. Again, God was not behind in formulating a plan B in order to save mankind. He already had made a way. He already knew. We see the proof of this in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. As God is giving the punishment to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam. And to the serpent, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It will bruise your head, and you will bruise his heel. So right away, from the beginning, there was a promise of a redeeming seed. 
a seed that would come as a man to crush the head of the hissing serpent. It's no wonder that there was such hatred and animosity toward woman from the very beginning for years and the robbing of children from the womb, the killing of infants born. The enemy knew that his downfall was going to come through the seed of a woman. He only didn't know what woman. He only didn't know when this would happen. And I love the fact that this is how God chose to do it because this is how he works in redemption. The very one who ate the fruit would also be the one God would use to get the holy fruit to earth. God was going to redeem woman and her seed. So as we begin to look at what taking authority and dominion in our lives looks like today, I want us to look at the visual that God gives us through this judgment on the serpent. It is this picture of the serpent in the dust and the foot of the man crushing his head. You may say, but Miranda, it also says the serpent will bruise his heel. Yes, it does say that, but notice it doesn't bruise the man's head or another higher body part. It's at the lowest part, the feet, and it's from behind. Instead of the serpent standing and challenging from the front or biting his big toe, the only chance that he has is on his belly and from the back. What we're given is an opportunity here, not to see the power of the serpent and to run in fear, but rather to see the dominion of the righteous seed. God told Adam and Eve, again, hear this, God told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth and to have dominion. That subdue means to tread and dominion is to rule. So by the authority given by God, we tread down and rule over the schemes and the hisses of the enemy. So how does this authority happen? Is it simply because I am a man or a woman created in God's image? In fact, all of mankind and womankind are created in the image of God. But no, the authority happens when I recognize that it has been given to me by Jesus Christ upon my receiving him as Lord. In our passage in 2 Thessalonians that I begin with, Paul says that you have from the beginning been called to salvation through sanctification and belief of the truth, which you're called by the gospel to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is specifically named here the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord is this Greek word, Kurios, and it means the possessor or the disposer of a thing. As an owner, it's the one who has control of the person. In a state, it's the sovereign or it's the prince or the chief. It's the one who has the power to decide. That's what Lord means. Look at this word possessor here for a minute, though, because throughout the scriptures, when the men of the Old Testament were to possess a land, they were to put their foot on it. 
Remember the story when God told Abraham to look at all of the land from the north, the south, the east, and the west? He said, everywhere that you put your foot, I will give it to you. When Israel and Joshua were going out to take the promised land, God told them, go and take the land. And they took it by actively putting their feet to the soil, by going into the land, not just talking about the land, but by physically occupying it. They planted crops. They worked the land. They built homes. They inhabited homes that were there. They filled the land with their cattle and with their families. So we see that to possess actively means to actually put your foot to something. Many times we see as acts of faith, men would cast their shoe over a land to show their desire to possess it. And even in the story of Boaz and Ruth, Boaz gave to the elders at the gate his shoe. There was this exchange to show his desire to take Ruth for his wife and to possess the land of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So there's this very strong link in the word to possession and to the feet. So we can't miss then the fact that the righteous seed who we know to be Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, that he would use his foot to take possession over the influence of the snake and would walk in dominion over him, treading him down into subjugation. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, the writer tells us that this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, and from then he waits until his enemy are, is made his footstool. Again, here we see this symbol of possessing the enemy, of ruling and having dominion. The earth is the footstool of the Lord. The Lord possesses the earth by placing his feet upon it. To possess means to be Lord over. So we re remember we see that we have been called to obtain glory by the lordship of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for dominion comes from the same root word for Lord that we've been talking about. And this dominion means to rule over or to exercise upon and to have power over. So the idea of possessing and ruling is not just being in charge of something so that you can feel important, but rather it is actively exercising an influence over the thing possessed. And this doesn't just mean like a servile subject, like taking an enemy force captive through a war, but it can mean very simply not to allow things to get out of order. Kind of like keeping a garden weeded so that the plants that actually fruit can grow uninhibited. To have dominion can mean to control, but it also insinuates to take care of. To have dominion ultimately means to exercise influence. And with that influence, there's a choice. And it can be a good choice or it can be a bad choice. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we're told more about Christ 
And we're told that the person that continues to commit sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The purpose for the coming of the righteous seed, Jesus, was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy means to loose or to dissolve. It means to break up. So in Adam, sin and death, they were given dominion over man. They were given reign over man. In Adam, sin is always crouching at the door. In Adam, there is always this temptation to succumb to the influence and the domination and the lordship of sin over our lives. Each of us are born into this, into this sin and into this influence. We're born to die. There's no escaping sin and there's no escaping death. In Romans chapter 5 verses 17 and 18 says, For by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, by the offense of one came judgment upon all to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. The death of Christ for mankind, it destroyed or loosed us from the hold of the enemy and from the works of sin and from death. And the gift of of the righteousness from the righteous seed allows us to reign in life. And to reign means not just to exercise influence, but to exercise the highest influence. The glory of Jesus Christ is his lordship and his dominion. It is his power over the works of the enemy. And we are told that we have been called to obtain that same lordship through Jesus Christ. In giving Jesus the right to reign and to be Lord of our lives, to exercise the place of highest authority in our lives, he in turn gives us the authority to act on his behalf and once again, like in the garden, to subdue and to take dominion over the land. So what is this land now in Again, what does that look like for me? Remember, I started this entire moment on spam. The spam risk, that potential to be derailed or to be interrupted and to be robbed of peace and joy and assurance in my life. To be robbed of believing the promises of God that he said were mine. So the land that you and I as followers of Jesus that we're called to possess is our own lives. The work of Christ destroyed the power of sin to rule over us. It destroyed the power of its influence to sway us and to trip us up. But even with this reality, in my own power, I am still unable to take control. I can find myself like Noah until I recognize something. I can find myself in the ark, but then also right at the door, this sin crouching. But again, until I recognize something, that I have someone that Noah didn't have. I have, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
Romans 8 verse 14 tells us, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit itself bears witness that we are the children of God. Now, the Holy Spirit gets to be our number one influence. He is the one to whom I come under authority to and by whom I walk in authority. I'm under him and I'm by him. Although you and I have been called and mandated to take authority and to subdue the earth and to possess the land, we cannot do it unless the authority and the power is given to us to do it. An ambassador is only as powerful as the kingdom that he represents. I can come in anyone's name, but if they have no power, they're only a name and I'm just speaking words that have no authority behind them. When Jesus came to the earth, he didn't just say that he was the son of God, or he didn't just say he was son of man. He proved it through the works that he did. His character and his power gave witness to the words that he spoke. I'm reminded of the story of the man that was lowered down through the roof by his friends right into the middle of the place where Jesus was speaking. I can just imagine what this would have looked like. And here we see Jesus seeing this man laying crippled. And he didn't say to him, hey, take up your bed and walk right away. Instead, the first thing that he said to that man was, your sins are forgiven. And those words that Jesus spoke, they caused such an uproar among the people and especially the Pharisees. And they said to him, who can forgive sins but God? In other words, you know, whose authority do you think that you're walking in right here? What are you saying? And Jesus responded to them. He said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why are you doubting? What's easier? What's an easier thing to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. But so that you will know that I, the son of man, have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise, take up your bed and walk. And the scripture tells us that immediately he did. The more that I understand this story, the more I love it. Because it would be easier to just say, hey man, your sins are forgiven. There's no measurable physical proof that that happens. It would simply just be words that have to be taken on faith. But to actually heal someone to where they walk again so that a physical thing is seen, that's hard. In fact, it's impossible to do that. And yet to show that Jesus could do both things on earth, both heal and forgive because he had authority. He did the thing that was harder, not the thing that was easier. He didn't just say, he backed up his words with action. He did the impossible thing. This was so there could be no doubt in the hearts and the lives of the people that saw this miracle unless they chose to ignore it. And Jesus told his followers that all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him. 
that he had this authority. He proved it through his word and through his miracle. He was proving it just by saying this because as he's speaking these words that he has all authority, he has already been crucified and raised again. So they are seeing some truth right in front of their eyes. And he tells them he has this authority. And then he says to them, he says, go out and make disciples. He said, baptize people in my name, lay hands on the sick and see them healed, cast out devils, speak with new tongues. He said that these would be signs that would follow the believer. What were they to be believing in? They were to be believing in him and in his lordship, not in their own faith in him or the measure of it, but rather their faith in his authority and their faith in his dominion. I think sometimes this is where we have missed it, friends, because we can be guilty of having to have faith in our faith, and that's not what we're asked to do. We're asked to have faith in the faith of Christ, faith in his work, faith in his authority and his dominion, and faith in the truth that he gave that authority and that dominion to us as his believers, as his followers, to execute it on earth. If we know who our authority is and where we get it, then we get to choose to allow him to be our main influence. So does this mean that you and I are never tempted? Does this mean that sin no longer exists for the believer and everything is just hunky-dory all the time? I wish it was the truth, but you know that it's not. I still have the potential and the risk for spam. I can still get those unexpected, unintended, uninvited, unwanted calls that would desire to send me reeling. But what I do have, what I do have is the greater influence in my life. Who I do have is the one who is Lord over the lies of the enemy and over the traps of myself. Our scripture in 2 Thessalonians 3.15 tells us then to stand fast and to hold to what we've been taught, whether by word or by epistle. The Lord Jesus himself loves us and has given us everlasting consolation or encouragement and hope through grace. So we're to find comfort in this and to be established then in every word and in every work. Friends, so often it is much easier to blame the devil for some of our struggles, but the truth is most of the time we're tempted because of our own selfishness and our own desires. It's our own ways a lot of times that speak more loudly than God's truth, and we're tempted to answer that call just to see who it could be instead of taking the authority over our own selves, of denying the influence of self, of denying the influence of sin 
in that place of sin because as ones that have been crucified with Christ, we are dead to sin. We have been loosed from its bondage. We no longer are hooked to that sin. And we've been taught now the truth of the word of God. We have his word. We have his spirit. If we are followers of Jesus, then he lives within us. And the word has the power to be the greatest influence over our lives. Friends, I so want to encourage us with this truth that this is who we have when we choose to use the word of the truth of God that he's given to us over what we think and over what people say and over what we've experienced we have just taken dominion in our land and we have stomped the head of the enemy we have subdued that serpent under our feet when we choose to speak his truth to our friends and over our family, when we speak up against sin and injustice, when we call what's right, right, when we call what's bad, bad, when we walk in mercy, when we walk in righteousness, when we pray, asking and believing and receiving what we've prayed for, we are taking dominion again over the garden of earth. So friends, in this moment today, this moment of spam risk, you may not be able to stop the spam from coming, but you do, you can refuse. You have the power and you can refuse to allow the spam from influencing your life. You, me, we have been created to possess and to rule. We have been created to possess and to rule in love and in authority by the creator. We can rule and possess from the place of his common interest in our lives. So here's my encouragement to us today. Let's choose to do just that. Let's choose to give Christ the reward for his suffering by being sons and daughters who once again stand fast and tread over the serpent's hiss, who crush the head of the enemy because Christ has crushed his head. Let's be the ones who choose to walk humbly and to walk wisely as ones who care for one another who care for the earth, who care for the people that are in the earth, the sons and the daughters, and those who have yet to realize that they are sons and daughters as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so very much for time in your word, for this time together to the mirror of your word, to look in deeply and to see the dominion and the authority that you have given to us as believers, that right to subdue and to have dominion over the earth. You have restored it to us in Christ. Jesus, I thank you that you have destroyed the works of the enemy, that as we find ourselves in you, that sin no longer has dominion over us, that we are able to walk in the influence of the Holy Spirit of God because we are born of God. We are the sons and the daughters of God, the sons and the daughters of your love. And I thank you, Father, for teaching us to walk in that authority and 
and to walk in that dominion. That just as temptation came to Christ in the wilderness, that we can overcome the temptation that comes to us, Lord. May we refuse the calls that come uninvited, Lord, those spam calls in our lives, Lord. May we choose to deny them the right to influence our day to day. And may we walk in the authority that you have given to us as your very own possession. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, thanks for joining me for this week's Moment with Miranda. I pray that you are blessed and as always that you will remember how much God loves you and so do I. Join me again next time for another Moment with Miranda.